invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 993. First Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 11, and I'll read through to verse 16. This is God's Word. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the passage just prior to this. We're in a series in 1 Timothy. And uh, last week, as we've been working through this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, we looked at verses 3 through 10. And in verses 3 through 10, Paul exposed the false teachers in the city of Ephesus. And Paul spoke there in those verses of the vices that were present in the lives of the false teachers in Ephesus. If you remember from last week, the false teachers in Ephesus were characterized by arrogance, by divisiveness and by greed. And now, the Apostle Paul, he shifts his focus. So, in the prior verses, he was focused on the false teachers and revealing their immoral lifestyles and their immoral ministry practices, but now he shifts his focus to Timothy. And there is quite a contrast. You notice it there in verse 11. He says, but, so immediately there's a contrast, but as for you, O man of God. And so Timothy is set in opposition to the false teachers. The false teachers are characterized by arrogance, by divisiveness, by greed. But Timothy is a man of God. And accordingly, Paul presents now Timothy with five instructions or exhortations that Timothy is to embrace and follow if he is, in fact, to be a faithful man of God and to fulfill God's calling upon his life to faithfully lead and care for the church in Ephesus. Now, if you desire, as I do, to be a man of God or to be a woman of God, then these are five exhortations that we must receive and we must act upon if we are to be men and women of God who please the Lord. 
And so these are the five exhortations, and we'll work through each one this morning. First, flee. Second, pursue. Third, fight. Fourth, take hold. And fifth, keep. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold, and keep. Let's, let's consider the first exhortation that Paul gives to Timothy, the man of God. Flee. Look there in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now we know from the Scriptures that a man or a woman of God is not to be marked by fear. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, we read that the righteous are as bold as a lion. Isn't that a great verse? And so if Timothy is to fulfill God's calling upon his life in his responsibility to lead and care for the church in Ephesus, he is to be bold, he is to be courageous, he is to act without fear. However, if there is something that the man or the woman of God fears, it is sin. And that's what Paul's referring to when Paul says, flee these things. He's speaking of, given the context that we've just been in, in verses 3 through 10, he's speaking of the sins and the vices of the false teachers. So in verses 3 through 10, he's already spoken of the arrogance, the divisiveness, the greed of the false teachers. And now he turns to Timothy and he says, but Timothy, you are a man of God, so flee these things. Flee the arrogance that would lead you to question the lordship of Jesus Christ and to divert from the true gospel of Christ. Flee the divisiveness that is so cancerous to the body of Christ and causes division in the church. Flee the love of money and covetousness and greed that would tempt you to shipwreck your faith for a dollar. Flee these things. Furthermore, as Paul instructs Timothy in his second letter that he writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 22, he tells Timothy this. He says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So in addition to fleeing arrogance and divisiveness and greed, Paul tells young Timothy that he is to flee immoral passions and lust. And so in this regard, Timothy is to take for his model Joseph. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? As a young man, he was tempted by Potiphar's wife who came to him again and again and again, attempting to get Joseph to lie with her. And Joseph, instead of succumbing to her temptations, what did he do? He fled. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that when she cornered him, he fled in such a way that he left his robe behind. He got out of there. He got away from temptation. He got away from sin. And God commended him for his faithfulness. And of course, in the Old Testament Scriptures, a, a contrast to Joseph would be someone like Samson. Remember Samson? So strong, no one could stand against him. God used Samson's strength over and over again to deliver his people from their enemies. 
And yet, what was Samson's relationship to the foreign women that lived around Israel who worshipped false gods? Instead of fleeing from them, he cozied up to them again and again and again. In fact, in the account of Samson, his godly parents at one point warn Samson, and they say to Samson, they're pleading with him, Samson, is there not one woman among the people of God that you could marry? But Samson would not listen to the advice and the counsel of his godly parents. And so he continued to cozy himself up to immoral and pagan women. Of course, Delilah was finally his downfall. He knew, in fact, that Delilah was attempting to betray him. But did he flee from her? No, he kept coming back again and again and again. And eventually she discovered the secret to his strength, his long hair. And when he was most relaxed, when he was in her presence, when he was cozying up to her and resting and he didn't know what she was doing, she cut his hair. And Samson was finally defeated by the Philistines. He was humiliated. They gouged his eyes out. They shamed him and he died in disgrace. Oh, my friends, what a warning for all of us. What a warning to every one of us to be like Joseph and not like Samson. As Paul says here to young Timothy, flee sin, flee these things, and protect yourself from unrighteousness. Understand this, my friends. The man or the woman of God is not evaluated in terms of their godliness by their ability to get as close to sin as they possibly can without crossing the line. Isn't that how oftentimes we relate to sin? Like if you think there's a line right there and that's sin, and you just put your, you put your foot right beside it, and then we'll do this, right? We'll be like, I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. Right? That is not how the man or the woman of God demonstrates their godliness. The man or the woman of God demonstrates their godliness by fleeing from sin, by getting as far away from it as possible, by not even giving it an opportunity to take hold in our lives, by cutting it out at its root before it even has the opportunity to sprout. Paul says to young Timothy, flee these things if you are to be a faithful man of God. Second exhortation, pursue. Look there in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, and here it is, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So these two imperatives, these two commands go hand in hand. Flee and pursue. And this is often in the scriptures, this is presented to us as the path to holiness. It's actually repeated again and again and again in the scriptures. Now, different language is used, but the same principle is presented to us again and again. So let me give you a few examples. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says to his disciples that they are to deny themselves and they are to follow him. So you see the negative command and the positive command. Deny yourself, follow me. 
Or in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us we are to put off the old man. That's the old sinful man that's in Adam. Put off the old man and put on the new man. That is the new man that is in Christ Jesus that has been transformed and renewed. Or in Titus chapter 2, we are told that we are to say no to ungodliness, but to say yes to godliness. Or here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says to flee evil, but to pursue holiness. And here's the idea. When you flee evil, what's happening is that before you were fixated on whatever particular sin or vice it was, whatever wickedness it was, your, your mind, your heart, your passions, your affections were consumed with it. And so when you flee it, when you let go of it and you start to go in the opposite direction, it leaves a void. And that void must be filled with something. It is possible, tragically, to flee sin in such a way that you just replace it with more sin. So, just somewhat of maybe a silly illustration to make the point. Have you ever met someone who decides that they need to go on a diet? Maybe their doctor has told them, look, you're a little bit overweight. It's going to be problematic for you. You need to go on a diet because it'll, it'll help you feel better. And so the person commits. They says, I'm going to go on a diet. And then they start to get the munchies, right? Like they're hungry and they want to eat and kind of makes them feel unsettled. And so what do they do? Have you ever met someone that goes on the diet to lose weight and they get the munchies? And so how do they deal with the munchies? They start smoking, right? <laughs> they start smoking cigarettes, right? So, so they trade the negative health repercussions of one thing, gluttony, for the negative health repercussions of another thing, which may even be worse, which is smoking. And, and there's a similar dynamic that can happen in our lives where we flee sin, but then there's a void. And if we don't replace it with something, we might just end up into more sin, different sin. And so Paul says the key to pursuing Christ's likeness, the key to being a faithful man or woman of God, is when you flee sin, you must replace it with a pursuit for holiness. A pursuit for righteousness. Because here's the reality. We are all pursuers. God has made us that way. It's innate within us. We can't stop pursuing. We are always pursuing something. Everyone in this room this morning is pursuing something. The question is, what are you pursuing? And so Paul tells Timothy here, flee unrighteousness but pursue righteousness. In other words, pursue right thinking and feeling and acting and right words. Pursue what is right before God. Paul tells Timothy to flee ungodliness, but to pursue godliness. In other words, if, if it doesn't look like God, if it doesn't resemble God, then run. But if it resembles God in His glory and in His characters and in His ways, then go hard after it. Paul tells Timothy to flee unbelief, but to pursue faith. 
In other words, Paul wants Timothy to distrust his doubt in God and in God's promises. And he wants Timothy to cherish childlike faith. I think that's a helpful thing for us in our pursuit of God is to distrust our doubts because we know we're naturally inclined to sin and unbelief and to trust God's promises and His Word because we know that He is reliable and His Word is true. Paul tells Timothy to flee hatred and malice and bitterness and unforgiveness, but to embrace love. Love as one who extends love to others because we ourselves have been loved when we were unlovable by God Himself. Paul tells Timothy here in verse 11 to flee fickleness, but to pursue steadfastness. In other words, he is to despise half-hearted commitments to Christ and to the gospel and to Christ's church, and he is to treasure uncompromised commitment and unwavering perseverance in the ways of the Lord. Paul goes on to tell Timothy to flee a harsh spirit, but to pursue gentleness. In other words, resist a hard heart and an unkind and sharp tongue and cultivate within yourself, cultivate within yourself a gentleness of heart and tone and speech that comes from someone who has been touched by the gracious and gentle hand of the Lord Jesus. Paul would tell us that we are all pursuing something, and so Paul tells us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fill the void of your life with the pursuit of the things of God. So the first exhortation is to flee. The second is to pursue. The third is to fight. Look there in verse 12, and we read these words. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now, notice this. This is a, um, a subtle distinction, but an important one. So if you look back in verse 11, Paul says that Timothy is to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. Now, faith there is spoken of as a virtue. Faith is a virtue that Timothy is to pursue. But in verse 12, there is a slight but important distinction. In verse 12, Timothy is told to fight the good fight of, and notice, the faith. Now, when he refers to the faith, Paul is referring to a body of Christian truth, a body of Christian doctrine that is to be fought for. So so Paul does not say in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, as though faith is a virtue, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. It has the article, which means it's a, it's, it's a body of content, a body of truth that Timothy is to fight for. This is actually a common expression that the Apostle Paul uses throughout the pastoral epistles. So, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are considered the pastoral epistles because Paul is writing letters to pastors and giving them instructions on how to care for Christ's church. And in these letters, Paul oftentimes refers to the faith or the truth 
or the teaching, or the deposit, or the message, or the doctrine. And what Paul is referring to in these cases is he's referring to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel. And Paul says here that Timothy is not only to believe this message, but he is to fight for it, that he has a responsibility to defend the truth against error and against heresy. Now, let me just say, nobody likes to fight. Well, there are some people that like to fight, right? But, but, but if you really like to fight, you probably need to check your heart. There's, there's probably something wrong there, right? Most people don't like to just be in a fight all the time. And we know that what Paul is telling Timothy to do here is not like what he was um, Uh, rebuking the false teachers for back in verse 4, where he spoke of the false teachers as having an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. So Paul's not encouraging Timothy to have a contentious or pugnacious spirit that causes division in the church. But Paul is saying that where the gospel is under attack, then Paul has, especially as an elder and a pastor in the church, a responsibility to clarify distortions, to address misunderstandings, to oppose the opponents of the gospel, and to testify to the truthfulness and veracity of the gospel. So listen, my friends, and this is important for us to hear, especially in our day. Contrary to what many people say, As Christians, we are not only to be known for the lives that we live, we are to be known for the truth that we confess to believe. Paul is telling Timothy here, Timothy, yes, I want you to have a holy life. Pursue righteousness and godliness and love and faith and holiness and gentleness. Pursue these things. But Timothy, it's not just enough for you to live a right life. You must contend for a right truth, the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every faithful Christian will do so. We should be known for the message we confess to believe, and we should contend for it. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For apart from this message, there is no church, there is no hope, there is no salvation. We need to understand that this contending and fighting for the truth not only happens in theological seminaries or on university campuses, or in official religious debates. But this kind of contending and fighting for the truth, it should happen at the cafeteria in our school. It should happen in the office at work. It should happen in the car with a friend, as we are always ready to give a winsome and persuasive presentation and defense of the gospel. The faithful man, the faithful woman of God will contend for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So flee, pursue, fight. Fourth exhortation that Paul gives to Timothy, the man of God, take hold, take hold. Look there in verse 12 and we read these words. Fight the good fight of faith, and here it is, 
take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, it's obvious from Paul's letter to Timothy and what we know about Timothy that Timothy has already received the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So, in fact, Paul makes this clear when he writes, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, when Paul uses the word called there, what Paul is referring to is that God has specifically called Timothy to himself so that when the gospel was preached, through the preaching of the gospel, when Timothy heard the gospel, God granted him the gift of faith and repentance so that Timothy necessarily heard the summons, the call of God in the gospel, and repented and believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that moment, he received eternal life. And then Paul goes on to say, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and notice this, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what is the good confession? Well, this most likely is a reference to Timothy's baptism. You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This last week, I was talking to a friend, and we were talking about what a powerful experience it is when we have the opportunity here at Crawford Avenue to watch someone be baptized. And if you've seen one of the baptisms here at Crawford Avenue, we allow the baptismal candidate to come forward and to share their testimony with the church. Brief testimony of their experience of God's salvation in their lives through Christ. And so they may share a three to five minute testimony, and then we make our way back to the baptismal, which is behind me here. And before I baptize someone, I always ask them two questions. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? And they say, yes, I am. And then I ask them, and do you desire to publicly identify yourself with Christ and with his church? And they say, yes, I do. And then it's at that moment then, having made that public confession of faith before all who are gathered here, the witnesses that are gathered on Sunday morning, that they are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Timothy's baptism, it may not have had all the exact particulars that I just described there in the way that we do it, but it would have been a similar experience. Timothy's baptism was the opportunity for him to make a public confession of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before many witnesses. That is the purpose of baptism. Let me just say as a sidebar, if there are any here this morning who have trusted in the Lord Jesus and received the gift of eternal life and you have yet to be baptized, I would encourage you to do so, to make the good confession before many witnesses that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. But notice here, as Paul speaks of this idea of eternal life of which Timothy is to take hold, notice Notice here what Paul means when he speaks of eternal life. Because to understand what Paul is saying here, we have to understand what the Bible teaches us about eternal life. And the Bible teaches us that eternal life has both a present component and a future component. The eternal life has both a present component and a future component. So listen to how Jesus defines eternal life in John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So according to Jesus, eternal life is to know God through Christ. And so for the believer, eternal life begins at the moment of conversion. You see, we tend to only think of eternal life as something in the future. But the Bible tells us that eternal life, yes, is something to come in the future, but it is also a present reality because when we turn from our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what's happened in that moment is that by God's grace, we have been given a new heart. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been engrafted into the people of God. We have, spiritually speaking, been raised from death to life. And this is the extraordinary gift, the extraordinary privilege that all Christians experience to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. All these things that I just described, the sum of those things and others, is the experience of knowing God through Christ. And what the Bible tells us is that that is a present reality for the Christian. Right now, at this time, in this moment, we know God through Christ. We have life in Christ. And that life will go with us through all our days on this earth and then will be fully realized when we enter into the next world. Now, if that's true, if Timothy already possesses eternal life, if he already knows God through Christ and has received all the privileges of eternal life, then why does Paul tell Timothy here, Timothy, take hold of eternal life? And I think this is the reason why. Because it is possible for us to possess something without enjoying it. It is possible for us to possess something without enjoying it. And oh, my friends, if the truth were to be told, often we enjoy far too little the glorious privileges and blessings and treasures and riches that are ours in Christ. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, it's yours. Take hold of it. Capture it. Seize it for yourself and enjoy it. Revel in the forgiveness of sins and a freed conscience before God in communion with Christ in fellowship with other believers and the eternal promises that are yours in the gospel. Take hold of them. Embrace them. Capture them for yourself and enjoy them for the glory of God. And this is not optional for us to be faithful men and women of God. It is absolutely essential. Fourth, keep. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold, and keep. Look there in verses 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So notice the last exhortation here in the passage. It's actually split between two verses because Paul does a little bit of a tangent, but we can put them together and see it clearly. He says there in verse 1, I charge you, and then look, skip down to verse 14, to keep. So that's the charge. It's to keep. And what is he to keep? The commandment. He is to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the commandment that he is to keep? Actually, there's a lot has been written on this, and there's a good bit of debate. Some people believe that when Paul says to Timothy to keep the commandment, he is referring to all of the exhortations that he has just given to Timothy in verses 11 through 12, the things that we have been talking about, fleeing and pursuing and so forth. Others believe that when Paul is telling Timothy to keep the commandment, he's referring to the entire letter of 1 Timothy, everything that he's written to Timothy up to this point in the letter. Others believe that when Paul tells Timothy to keep the commandment, he's referring to the gospel, and he's encouraging Timothy to be faithful to the gospel. I want to propose a different alternative. I suspect that what Paul is referring to here when he says to Timothy to keep the commandment is that he's referring to the great commandment. If, uh, if you remember in it's Matthew chapter 22, a Pharisee, or a, he was actually a lawyer, he was a Pharisee who was a lawyer, he comes to Jesus and he's attempting to test Jjesus. He's attempting to trap Jesus. And so he has a you know, big, deep theological question that he's going to ask Jesus and try to get Jesus stumble to stumble. And so he asked Jesus, Jesus, what is the greatest of all the commandments in the law? And do you remember how Jesus responded? Jesus responded by saying, the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is what Jesus says is the first and the greatest commandment, to love God with all that we are. And it seems here to fit the context well, because in just a few moments after, after Paul instructs Timothy to keep the commandment, in just a few moments, Paul then will break forth into doxology in verses 15 to 16. You remember we looked at this several weeks ago when we were talking about the glory of God and how for the first six months of this year we're going to be focusing on the glory of God. And in verses 15 to 16, Paul says, referring to God, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen, seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And and notice what what Paul is saying about God in these verses. He, He identifies God as the final sovereign. He is the one who is the king over all kings. He is the Lord over all lords. Not only that, but Paul says that he is immortal, which means that God is not subject to decline or to decay or to death. But the God of the Bible is full of life, teeming with life at all times and forever. 
And not only that, but God speaks of his or Paul speaks of God's transcendent glory here. He says that this God, his glory radiates such a magnificent, uh, from his glory radiates such a magnificent and splendid light that if we were to behold it in its fullness, we would die from the splendor of it all. And it's like Paul is saying, he's, he's, he's presenting Timothy with this God. This glorious, transcendent, magnificent, sovereign God, full of life and glory. And he says, keep the commandment to love that God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And by the way, if you keep that commandment, if you love him with everything you are, you will flee sin and you will pursue righteousness and you will take hold of eternal life and you will fight the fight of faith. This is the heart of a man or a woman of God. A heart that is sold out completely and entirely to know that my greatest joy my greatest contentment, my greatest satisfaction, what will be best in life for me is to know God as much as I can and to love Him as fully as I can. And then everything else flows from that. I hope that you desire to be such a man or such a woman. And praise God that when we fail to be so, He has provided us with a Savior, the Lord Jesus who has saved us and redeemed us by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead to cover our sins and our weaknesses and our failures of love, but not to just leave us there, then to transform us and change us so that we love God more and more and more and we become the man and the woman of God that he desires for us to be more and more each day. Let's pray and ask for his grace. Father, we thank you for your word, and um, Lord, we thank you that we do not have to be beholden to the vices of sin and death and destruction, Lord, like we saw described last week in the lives of the false teachers. But Father, we thank you that by your redeeming grace and mercy and love that you have called us to yourself, that you've granted us the gift of eternal life, and that you have shown us what it means to love you with all that we are. And you, even in your mercy and grace, immeasurable mercy and grace, when we come to you in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, you give us new hearts, hearts that love you, hearts that want to know you, hearts that want to follow after you. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to do this transforming work in our lives, in our hearts, in our church so that we might be men and women of God that bring you glory, that are found faithful, faithful to you, faithful to the gospel in our own day. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.